0: And welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Precluse, aka Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit Blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump Epstein and the Secret History of the Anglo American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V I S U P V I E W, all one word.blogspot, also all one word.com. And procure a copy of that book amount of works at the farm's official store, which is at the podcast. That is the podcast. All one word dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a
1: lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right. Today's guest is fabulous. This is his third appearance on the farm. He has formal training in both uh, seriology and archaeology, Folks, I give you guys Austinese. Austinese, thank you so much for dropping by again this afternoon. sir.
2: Oh, you're welcome, though. On the West Coast, it is still very much the morning. Ah, yes, yes. Point
1: taken, point taken. Well, at least you're hopefully dry for this podcast uh, in the midst of the uh, flooding that is ongoing in Northern California.
2: Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean... That is definitely a problem, but at least we're getting water.
1: Yeah, well, I think we might invoke a storm god or two in this episode, so who knows? Maybe that'll help, or at least it'll be
2: something interesting. Yeah, I mean, Nergal was the god of drought, so normally I'm not exactly about inviting gods of blood and death and pestilence in, but, you know... We just once.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You might actually have some use in this uh, particular situation. All right. As with all my shows with Austin These, this one is going to be heavy on the metaphysics and obscure history of antiquity, because I just love these topics. Today we are going to tackle a subject littered with landmines: the story of Jerusalem priesthood. A lot of powerful, world-spanning religions have. A lot invested in this narrative, to put it mildly. Thus, things like child sacrifice, divinely ordained genocide, and hidden Nergal worship are rarely invoked when discussing this topic. But we're going to get to there and even further, maybe even far enough to the point that Nergal will, in fact, stop the rain in California. This outing is going to pop some serious bubbles, if nothing else, soon. Let's start out with the Jerusalem priesthood. Obviously, various groups have tried to whitewash this institution for a variety of purposes over the years. But there are certain aspects no one really wants coming out. So let's start with the, let's just say, special relationships said priesthood had with underworld deities.
2: Uh, Sure, yeah. yeah. So... You have to understand, first of all, that the idea of evil and bad in those times were very different is that, you know, everyone had at least one God they worshipped or entity they dealt with that we would consider evil. And it's entirely true that they didn't like these deities often, but they still had to work with them. You know, they had their place, but they were dangerous and they needed to be like said, okay, now it's time to leave. And so Nergal was one of them. In fact, Nergal really was the um, the preeminent deity of what we would call evil and destruction. He was a god of you know death, war, the underworld, greed, plague. Tried to destroy the world once, and uh, his only Babylonian epic. So really, he's you know not not exactly. the guy you'd wanna meet. And what's interesting is Jerusalem creates good. Uh even though it was, you know, saying like we were world gods and oh wait, yeah, shit. Sorry, I'm not an early person, but not all of the world gods were so them were healers. No it was not that was was not a he, he was not a healer. He was not a wisdom giver. He was not, you know, Let's all talk to the ancestors and be nice. He was, he was. You consider a satanic archetype. Now let's uh, let's go back to Jerusalem Temple. So, for starters, everything a Jerusalem Temple, right? It is probably the most contested. It's the Dome of the Rock. It's a temple. It's where the Jesus is going to come out to crown angelicals. But. What a lot of people don't also know is that it was uh, in the book is really, really weird, especially for people. Keep in mind that one, in there weren't really many. Um, this guy Abraham House has an article talking about the fact that with a few exceptions, there weren't any centralized cults in Israel or Judah for hundreds of years. You know, there'd be altars, there'd be stone circles, there'd be earthworks, but there weren't really, you know, big sacrifice cults, except for Jerusalem. And what we have for Jerusalem, already sort of an anomaly in its own, is that it was on a threshing floor. And of course, that doesn't really sound like much because it's like, all right, you know, Does a thing to an audience. But it actually does. At least if those times. Because keep in mind, back then, without TV and other stuff and 5 million channels and YouTube, there's a very common symbolic language. And so here's what the Temple is according to an article by um, Nikos Kausis. Which uh, Yeah. Actually, no. Nikos Kosidi is another one. Um, uh, Tamar Prozik. And basically, in the Book of Kings, um, there is a plague going on. And what happens next is that David and some of his uh, administrators go to the house of this guy. I don't remember his name. He's not an Israelite. He's something. And an angel with a massive sword appears on a threshing floor. And they're like, okay, that we are going to build the temple. And that sounds great. It sounds random. After all, it's just in some guy's house. But the fact is the threshing floors in the ancient Near East were seen as related to the underworld and the plague and the death. In fact, in uh, Joseph Yogev's uh, Rephaim, Sons of the Gods, he mentions that, you know, one of the places the Rephaim appeared in the uh, Epic of Akkad. You know, the Rephaim are sort of related to Nephilim as weird ghost was the refreshing floor. And you know, it was also associated with Nergal, and it was associated with chthonic deities and murder and plague and death. And even the fact that it was a plague, specifically, like, you know, not a drought, not a famine, not something a sky god would do, but a plague, really gets into the idea that there is something weird from the start. Because from what we know, you know, Yahweh was not at least originally an underworld though. It gets even stranger, because then there's the fact that, you know, um, there is a lot of solar stuff in uh, Jerusalem Temple, especially by Thomas Romer, who uh, says that Thomas Romer is a French guy. So, you know, um, but Thomas Romer was saying that the way that it's translated, I can't find the passage exactly, is that, you know, in this temple, the temple was mainly to the sun god, not to Yahweh, and that this uh, Yahweh could dwell there too. But this was mainly to the sun god because Yahweh, if you remember in the Book of Kings, in you know Sunday school or Hebrew school, did not want to be there. He's like, I don't want a temple. I just want some standing stones. And so you got the sun god, and that's great. Oh, it's great. It's wonderful that you have the sun god. But there's also sort of the fact that if you take the idea of the sun god, uh, yeah, I mean, okay, as an underworld deity, which was a thing because, you know, the sun would go underground and it would, be, you know, Especially in the Middle East during the suffering, death, and destruction. Oh, by the way, I was just to, uh, just to... know, <laughs> you already have the plague. You're...
1: Yeah. Um, please. It, do. Uh, it's the um when you're talking about like sun god, is this sort of like a like an Apollo kind of archetype or something like that,
2: or is it something like different? Um, I mean, it's closer to the Apollo you get in the Iliad, where he's still very much this destructive. Ambivalent plague god rather than the great civilizer.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, Apollo was also, I mean, potentially one of the uh, personifications of the great hunter deity, too, which I mean, kind of puts me far with um, some accounts of Odin and the whole divine fun and what have you, which is sort of universal between these deities and elements of Artemis as well. So,
2: I mean, Apollo was also supposedly based on Nurgle. Oh really?
1: That would definitely make a lot of
2: sense as we get going into some of this. Yeah, thing. it's uh, he's he's everywhere. In fact, he was the patron deity of the Trojans. But yeah,
1: and um, possibly too the patron deity of um, well, obviously the French court as well. Uh, going to what was it Louis? The, the which was the one who equated himself with the sun god?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's entirely possible though. Though the the Apollo we got by that point was very very different. <laughs> Than the Apollo of the Eliot.
1: I don't you know. know it's like... You should go to uh, New Estate and, um, oh, uh, Wilmington, Delaware. At some point, uh, that was the one that was set up by the DuPont family, who had uh, fled France not long after the Revolution. That um, that elaborate uh, courtyard setup they have to uh, Diana and Neptune um, might. Uh, remind you that they were aware of some of the older traditions.
2: Okay, alright. That's that's entirely fair. That I, uh, If I ever go back east then I will definitely check it out. But uh, actually, here's the passage. Okay, it's from Thomas me. Romer, and Thomas Romer is a very respected guy. You know, he's France's biblical scholar guy who's not uh, frothing at the mouth of the evangelical, and it says at that time, Solomon said about the house when he had finished building it. It is the sun which the Lord has made known in the heavens. He said he wanted to dwell in the darkness. Build my house, a magnificent house, or house of governance, for you to dwell therein always anew. Behold, is this not written in the book of Psalms? But the Mesoheretic text, which is the Hebrew text, says this. Thus Solomon said, Yahweh has said that he will dwell in thick darkness. Therefore, I have built a house of governance a place for you, so that you may dwell in it forever, with the principal uh, reciprocant of these words being the sun. So already you got a sun god related to plague and threshing floors. And the fact that it's a god, not a goddess, like it was in most of uh, northwest Syria, because um, you know, in that area, when you're talking about the benevolent sun god, it would have been a woman. So already it's getting very, very weird. And it's getting very sort of on the idea of this is a temple to the god of death and plague and hostile forces of the underworld. You know, I love
1: talking about human yeah. sacrifice. So is this what you've been kind of hinting at with the threshing floor here? Is that uh, evidence about this possible practice amongst the priesthood?
2: Um, well, we have some evidence of human sacrifice. It's not just the threshing floor, because Nurgle could get other stuff. He could get cows or goats or wild bulls, like other gods. But for the most part, um, in the ancient Near East, human sacrifice was specifically a measure of last resort. It was something that you would only really do during a disaster causes after be God who either be Nurgal or in this case uh, Mutu, but seeing as Nergal sounds better, we're gonna be using Nergal or Reshep. This even in the Bible. Um but would we'll get human sacrifice probably the most. In uh, even Malik or Malak was a you know an underworld sun god according to what we've sort of figured out from the very sparse things we also have baal Haman who had solar connotations will's underworld connotations and he was the you know the big guy in carthage who was famous for its child sacrifice even beyond that i mean we do have evidence for example uh in jerusalem we have l.a behemoth which is very, very close to temple. If you ever in a, ever in the area, you know you can go there and say, "Hey, I've been to hell. I've been to Gehenna. And uh, you know that place is famous for its uh, having children burned to death in tofits, which are you know the thing that to be sacrificed to for Ne world, world gods. But beyond the whole Tophet thing, there's also the case of Abraham, and at first this is like, well, he didn't, right? But here's another thing, is that the him not doing it might be a later redaction, especially because, you know... Uh, yeah, wasn't there like if a parallel to that on myths or something like that? Uh... I'm not sure if there's a parallel in Sumerian myth. Oh, no, there I'm was thinking a of the
1: flood myth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, I think. yeah, that's... I, sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, I was thinking of their uh, flood yeah, myth. Everywhere has it. No,
2: no, no it's, it's totally cool. Everywhere has a flood myth. And, but, uh, I mean, I guess another thing I've sort of been forgetting to mention is there were two kingdoms um, that made up what we call of, you know, Bible land. There were Israel and Judea, or Judah. And Israel or Samaria was, you know... The northern kingdom and it was not the place jerusalem temple was its main temple was bethel as mentioned the jacob cycle and it was you know we have a lot of dead cows there we don't really have much evidence of human sacrifice from there but we do have some from the southern area and the southern area because you know each area had its own important local figures who would later become part of the bible um was the place where abraham was and there's actually a, uh, a synchronicity between the myth of, or the story of Abraham in Genesis, and something mentioned by the Phoenician historiographer uh, Philo of Byblos in his Phoenician history, where the god El, um, associated with Kronos by the Greeks, still also just sort of a catch-all term for pantheon head. Uh, sacrificed his son and then circumcised himself. And of course, Kronos was the god that the Greeks and Romans equated with the Phoenician god that would be getting human sacrifice. And what's really interesting is that according to Thomas Romer again, is that at least in the north and even a lot of places outside of Jerusalem priesthood, Abraham wasn't really that big of a deal. In fact, Thomas Romer even brings up ideas like him sort of parasitizing other figures in the Bible and taking their aspects to the point where, you know, some of the stories might have been for Isaac or Jacob, but the southern Jerusalem priesthood was like, no, no, this is going to Abraham. In fact, there's even some competition between Abraham and Moses where you can tell which side, you know, the priestly redactor was on. It was very much the side of Abraham because they're like, well, yeah, Moses did all this, but. Abraham did this too, but just wasn't written about. And so the fact that you know, with some exceptions, his main act is an act of human sacrifice. Even in period, Midrash's biblical commentary were, you know, yeah, he he killed Isaac and it fertilized the ground. Everything was okay. So there's that. There's also the fact that, you know, one of the cities that, uh, helped him, helped Solomon build the temple was Tyre. Um, <clears throat> and Tyre was one of the two big Phoenician cities. Phoenicians, if you don't know, were, a uh, merchant people who lived on the coast and, you know, they're famous for making the color purple. And, uh, one of the cities that sacrificed children the most that we have like actual evidence the ones whose city state made a spin-off that was carthage was tyre and the fact is that the king of tyre hiram was the one who helped solomon in fact solomon and him and david were actually very very close and you know a lot of the masonry stuff will uh, say you know yeah, Solomon was cool and all, but really the secrets came from King Hero. And once again, um, the god of uh, Tyre, Melkart, was a violent underworld god whose uh, name means king of the city. And guess what also translates to that? And this is going to sound in some ways quite schizo of me. Nergal also means king of the city and I think uh, Sumerian. And by city, they mean the cities of the underworld. So that's fun. Was uh, Solomon's
1: uh, one of his wives also from Tyree, if I remember correctly?
2: Uh, Solomon had wives from
1: basically everywhere. Yeah, I mean from like basically everywhere, but I think the one who had, what she had kept her indigenous faith or something like that, that they make reference to in the Bible, if I remember correctly. Uh,
2: That was actually uh, Ahab's wife in the Northern Kingdom. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so the Northern Kingdom is, you know, Ironically enough with the exception of some of the Jerusalem temple stuff where most of the Old Testament that people really are like, you know, into comes from. It's so like for example, Elijah and Elisha um are from the northern kingdom. A lot of the prophets at least wrote in the northern kingdom. The Exodus tradition is from the northern kingdom all the stuff about social justice. And of course, you know, if you read just the bits from the Northern Kingdom, because there are multiple parts of the Bible, according to the documentary hypothesis, which is the dominant hypothesis that the Bible is made of a bunch of resources. If you only read the Northern sources, um, you know, I mean, it, it have more of a focus on social justice, though it also sort of comes across in many ways as almost authoritarian leftist in a lot of ways. Like, you know, all rich people are bad, Um, you know. Yahweh is going to uh, help the widow and the orphan by killing their oppressors. Do not oppress uh, the stranger or you will get leprosy. That kind of stuff. So it wasn't exactly, you know, touchy-feely, good times all around. (laughs) But there was still very much like, you know, we do not want Tyrian worship here. We will work with Sidon, we will work with other people, we will work with you know, that we don't want powerful kingship or centralized worship.
1: Yeah, no, this was also, um, what, what, I guess, like, a little after the period of the judges, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. David was, like, what the last judge, if I remember correctly, or, or Samuel was, I think.
2: Samuel was the last judge. Um, Samuel yeah. was the last judge, or really a prophet. Is that both from the archaeological evidence and from the Bible itself, we don't really get much on the idea of there being Israelite kings before that. In fact, you know, the thing we they have. they
1: actually have like the equivalent of a kingship uh, out of curiosity? I, I don't recall that they had done it or to the extent that the Israelis did with Solomon. Well, it was actually the
2: other way around. Is that Israel was the one where kingship wasn't really that big of a deal. Okay, okay, okay. And Judea was the one which had a very much strong kingship, and yes, Israel did have a kingship, which this is, you know, but it was a lot less central to the cult. They were more like the Sumerian kings in that they were, you know, they had some investment by God, but they were still very much the secular leader, is that prophets could show up and just call them out and say, you suck, they have to accept the fact that the prophet said, you suck. Or at least history would, you know, once immediately after they died. But there was no like idea of, like, this is a divine line. This is the savior of all men up north. And in fact, what's really interesting is that Judea uh, was a very latecomer, according to a lot of people, to uh, the Israelite confederacy. And Jerusalem especially, because it wasn't even an Israelite city. It was one of the last cities taken according to the Bible. It was still a Jebusite city. We don't really know much about the Jebusites. And uh, in fact, we even think that Zadok, or Zedek, the high priest whose line took over the city, was uh, a Jebusite priest.
1: Interesting. Well, the um the last time I had you on here, we talked at length about the uh, Watchers. You'd already alluded a little bit to the riffing, um, you know, being active in a sense among the uh, Jerusalem priesthood. Is there anything else to kind of add to that uh, in terms of... Oh, yeah, time? totally. Okay, go for it.
2: Um, I'm going to be pulling up some stuff, and I said this, this goes into a deep dive because a lot of this is, you know, very obscure, very academic, and is that in the book, David's Demon, um, there is big emphasis on something called an aerial. And even the name DWD points to some kind of superhuman ancestor cult. Not just like, you know, um, an ancestor that's like, you know, just grandpa's under the floorboards and occasionally you gotta pour some wine, but like, you know, a royal ancestor and in fact um in the book death rituals ideology and development of early mesopotamian kingship toward new understanding of iraq's royal cemetery of ur andrew c cohen he mentions that one of the ways that kingship really started was specifically as a necromantic institution where they're like yeah the priests talk to the gods but our ancestors are a pretty big deal and so these ancestors of the kings would be things that would be between the gods and humans in sort of the role of watchers. And, you know, sometimes they raise above the gods, sometimes they wouldn't. And so, in my opinion, this is a very subjective opinion. But one of the. A- Astonies, um is the.
1: Um- the yeah, yeah, the instance where um um Samuel was summoned uh, as a specter, I think David summoned him maybe or something like that to ask. him It was it Saul. It was, it was Saul. Saul. Okay, okay. Um, was that like sort of a
2: remnant of this tradition that you're alluding to? Out of curiosity. Um, it's complicated because some people say you know like in uh Book of Kings. Um the first thing Samuel does when he is, uh, Samuel was the guy who preceded David uh, was to ban all necromancers and say, you know, we can't have these cults here we can't have these practitioners here they gotta stop or get the fuck out and eventually Samuel gets desperate and he's like okay, f- not Samuel, Saul all. Saul, yeah, so Saul was the the king before David. Samuel's like, yeah, David's better. Samuel dies after Saul banned all necromancers, and Saul gets desperate. And so he's like, fuck, 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 what am I going to do? And so he goes to the balat ob which either means master or mistress of the pit or mistress of the outer angles. And you can make a lot of different... uh, answers about the entomology of that and samuel comes up and says fuck you you're gonna die and a lot of people at least in later uh, traditions and later interpretations and more you know samuel agreed yeah necromancy is bad so don't do it but on the other hand between that there is also uh according to Bruce Hallerpin, who wrote David's Secret Demons and a lot of other papers. He's actually saying that no, Saul made a mistake by, uh, you know, trying to stop the woman of the pit because she's actually depicted quite sympathetically. You know, in this book as opposed to the northern sources which are like, you know, don't be a necromancer, don't talk to necromancers, don't go near necromancers. And, you know, I think that Well, in some ways, uh, really bad. I also kind of understand, especially after reading Joe Fisher. Well, if you're just doing it from a utilitarian perspective, that's like, yeah, that might be a problem. (laughs) And so, you know, it's entirely possible that, at least in this original Southern redaction, as opposed to the Deuteronomic redaction, which is much later, that this was very much like, you know, Saul got rid of the cult of the Rephaim, and David got it back, and there you go.
1: just fascinating that they would basically be using the spirits of the dead, then it's like intermediaries between them and the Rephaim, so yeah, that does bring up uh, some very interesting possibilities, especially with um, all the allusions to to angels and
2: so forth in the Old Testament. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, angels for the most part are angel would be the thing that you would call up. anything that used to be a god, with the exception of wisdom, who used to probably be goddess Astra. Is you know they're like, okay, this isn't this isn't the god fawn this, this is god Anael, or you know. This isn't Yam, the sea god. This is Sar-Yam, prince of the sea, which, according to the Talmud, people were still sacrificing to, um, I think, into the early bits of the Common Era, not that the rabbis who wrote the Talmud were at all happy about this, but, you know, it was still going on. But uh, one other thing I forgot to mention in uh, regards to David, um, in the book, Henry is the Divine Liar, Liar as an L-Y-R, by John Curtis Franklin... The god who is sort of at least maybe the king of the um, was the ship, and more specifically the playing of the harp, which is exactly what David is famous for. And in fact, one of the things that David does with his harp after the death of, I think, Samuel and Jonathan is call a drought upon the land.
1: You know, it's fascinating with like um some of the traditions of the bards and troubadours as well. I mean, they were able, you know, in some accounts to summon animals, other kinds of things like that, uh, through the use of music. So yeah, I have often um wondered if that was a bigger part of some of the earlier ritualistic invocations. Um, certainly it seems like it's uh fascinating. It's at how many of uh, these characters end up also being minstrels or something to that effect on the side.
2: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, a lot of uh, from what we get, uh, the more esoteric parts of ancient religion were bards. You know, you have the cult of Ishtar, who had, you know, a cross-dressing, and some say even castrated priests, and one of the things they would do would be play music with sistrums and drums, and know, exorcism and the rites to the ballad drum in Mesopotamia, which we also know was done in Syria, you know, involved a drum made out of a bull and there was screaming and shouting. And even the prophets, um, you know, we think of them as like these steadfast sort of bearded guys pointing at people saying, don't do that. But in the earliest books of the Bible, we knew that they were going to ecstatic and there'd be these bands of men would, you know, be entered by the Spirit of God, or more likely an upwelling, seeing as gods, of gods in that time were seen as internal forces that were shared among mankind of the Spirit of Yahweh, and they go into these branches, they fall on the floor, and they freak the fuck out, and then they get back up and tell you what exactly they want, Which was specifically uh, stated as them going up and listening to the Divine Council. So yeah, no, the bard is a big point, but the netherworld bard king is specifically a big deal to it, and it seems in Jerusalem as well.
1: Yeah, well, that's uh, that's also interesting, About there's like induced Francis as well. It reminds me a bit of an institution I've been researching uh, various known as, I think, kuros and the mannerbund and so forth, and uh, these were basically these youth societies that uh, typically the sons of uh, elite families were brought into and uh it was almost a kind of proto training for special operations forces on the one hand where they were expected to live off the land and um hunt raid you know rival villages all this other kind of stuff for you know six months three months out of the year effectively abandoning all earthly possessions and um you know all being homeless to go through all of this uh they were especially well known for the ferocity of their fighting um Uh, in fact, this is actually one of the uh, institutions that might have inspired the werewolf mythos. It was actually fairly common for them to wear wolf skins when they were in combat. And, you know, again, they uh, were just sort of known for the sort of berserker type fighting style and probably were a later inspiration to the more famous berserkers from the Scandinavian cultures. But Going into these states, uh, like with the Kuros, they claimed that they were being possessed by uh, Mars and um, Dionysus. There's been a lot of theories, uh, especially since in many of the mythos, these sort of mythological warrior bands are often depicted as drinking Soma, uh, that they had, in fact, consumed some kind of drug, again, given the close association that they had to candle. It may well have been uh, magic mushrooms. Uh, which effectively would bring them into a state of possession by these deities, and that in turn would drive the fanaticism that they brought to combat in the field. Well, it just seems like it's a similar process of what they were kind of doing with these uh, gentlemen as well, though they weren't necessarily being used as soldiers, at least at this point. But um, No, they
2: they, they weren't. In fact, the soldiers actually... uh specifically would have been the Levites who were more like the idea of Ronin or Samurai or even like Jedi Knights than uh, I'm not saying that I'm romanticizing them because we knew that they got up to some shit and a lot of them used their power for very shady things, you know, but these would be wandering law exegetes who would go around um, kicking ass and of course you know um in tradition of israel and especially in a one book which is an academic sort of you know of the story of the people who traced themselves back to moses it was very authoritarian leftist very you know everyone must be equal who joined the israelite coalition by force and by you know murder so it's apparently possible that these guys were basically just you know mystical versions of soviet commissars in fact probably closer to what they actually were what was interesting was that um one of the first things jerusalem priesthood did was specifically to tell the levites to uh, get the fuck out
1: But it makes sense. I mean, they would have probably been seen as substantial rival to the authority of the Jerusalem priesthood. Did the Levites also have some kind of priestly association themselves as well?
2: Yeah, they did. Um, The Levites were specifically uh, guys who were seen as the descendants, or Mm -hmm. not descendants of Moses. Moses was a Levite. Some of the Levites tracked their ancestors back to Moses, but we're not even sure that Levite was the and seeing as there were really no besides occasional sacrifice spots for cows and vegetables. Of course, they're crazy with cow sacrifice, you know. Um, They would have probably been like the guys who said, this is sacrifice to cow, this is what you do in the legal dispute. Instead, it, it is very Soviet they I
1: mean almost strike me as sort of a remnant of this like older kind of like warrior cult um that would have maybe comprised the original priesthood and then with the Jerusalem one it's kind of a uh you know the uh, emerging challenger almost
2: I would agree with you on that is that as I said I think that it's once again from the Indo-European idea of a warrior cult you know it's not like the We go on raids, it was very much a lot more defensive. But but there was the moral aspect. You know, these be killing people, and they probably as said would have very much would have been authoritarian-less paradigm. You know, I mean, if you want more authoritarian lessism, just read the gospel of James.
1: But yeah, no, it's, it's and the, sure. the, you know, the connection with cattle too, I think is very interesting because that was a uh, sort of an overlap with the Indo-European funds as well. Where they typically were, the cattle raids were like a big part of all of that. So uh, it's definitely fascinating that there's also that association. Well, I,
2: I think that for the most part, um, the, the cattle in that area, especially the bull was specifically, um, the uh, symbol of the storm god. Like for example all who ate all to get ball was the same with El, who was the father of the gods and with Marduk. And in fact the idea of the bull storm god actually has much organization in the Levant Indo European culture, especially because the weather god um you know in the old European pantheon is actually less common than the god in the sky. Just read the Wikipedia article. I can't pronounce any of these names. <laughs> I gotta try, but there is the fact that you know um Even Zeus, for example, had a lot more in common with Ball or, Mar- or Mar- you know, just pay- <laughs> Jupiter, originally dying the storm god who goes out and fights monsters and gets his ass kicked and then comes back. But it means it's possible, like, you know. There was some regional thing in the Western world that wasn't exactly in Slavic areas, you know, some kind of cattle cult probably started by the pre-Semitic, pre-Indo-European Anatolians that just sort of cut on like wildfire.
1: Yeah, no, I'd uh, only just now kind of started to put up, like, I recognize the significance of cattle and like a lot of these uh, these early cults and so forth. But yeah, it's um, definitely an overlooked component. I mean, we see it a lot, obviously, with like Mithras and the Bull Slayer and what have you, Taurus. But I mean, we don't really think about, um, you know, some of the broader connections to it in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously, there's the connection with the mushrooms uh, on the one hand, but I mean, also the fact that, you um, you know, I mean a cow obviously and of itself is almost a self-contained industry. I mean, it can be used to transport goods, it can be slaughtered to produce, you know, meats and that kind of thing. So there's Uh, The skin can be used for clothing. I mean, there's any number of uh, useful purposes that the uh, cattle represented. I can imagine the ancients almost viewing it as one of the uh, most marvelous or miraculous uh, creations of all because it did have so many insane purposes and milk from the uh, calves or I mean, from the female uh, gals and all this other stuff. So and there's a lot to it. But uh, let's shift gears here and get into some exodus for a moment in the suppression of various traditions. So this is obviously one of the most crucial events uh, for most of the world's monotheistic religions, to put it mildly. So it's of no small importance that there appears to have been a significant struggle over this narrative. Uh, so what did that struggle constitute, Austin?es
2: You know, from the first written records we have of the Northern Kingdom, which is from the Southern Kingdoms, we have people who supposedly claimed their ancestry all the way back to Moses, who were in very, very important positions. We have this sort of general distrust of all things Egyptian, more of a sort of leading towards the Mesopotamian ideas in the Northern Kingdom and, you know, in the Northern Prophets. We have very early attestations of an exodus tradition even if they sometimes like Moses, sometimes they don't. But we do know, you know, like, it was he who took Israel out of Egypt. We don't have that in the southern kingdom at all. There is no mention of the exodus in the southern kingdom until after the destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians in uh, the 8th century BCE. And when... That happens, you know. They put it in there, but they're also sort of a little weird about it. They don't want Moses to be too important. They don't want him to be too too big. Another really interesting thing is is that in some of the prophets, and this is actually starting to be a uh, idea in the work of academics, you know, mainstream academics, is that even in the southern Judean imagination. Only the Israelites were taken out of Egypt. And that's because you know, Solomon, who was the king after who was the one who actually built the temple, had a massive hard-on for Egypt and the pharaoh and the pharaonic institution. And so, you know, it, it would make sense that he wouldn't want to say, you know, yeah, we're glad that we either left your country and stopped being there or likely are celebrating the fact out of Canaan that would not go over well if you're trying to be a new pharaoh. In fact, we even know or at least have theories that um, when the northern kingdom broke from Solomon's control, we were very very big on pushing the Exodus narrative with Solomon in the role as pharaoh. And you also get this with stuff like getting rid of the Levites, who trace most of their authority to Moses. Um, the fact that Zadokites, who were the Jerusalem priesthood, who go back to Zedek, didn't consider themselves related to Aaron, who was the guy who was, for the most part, linked to the much smaller Bethel priesthood. You know, and they until the pre uh post exil period after the Babylonian exile uh, was there like okay yeah we're, we're from Aaron beforehand they weren't doing that at all. There's the fact that we have a lot of traditions minimizing the importance of Moses and yeah, by Abraham was more important. But there is a view that the idea of the Exodus, and ironically enough, according to Richard Elliott Friedman, a lot of the stuff that was concerned with you know do not oppress the stranger or free strangers in Egypt once. But the things that really could be called ethics or human rights, which all really come from, at least in the Abraham tradition, that first of the Exodus tradition, was more important in the Northern Kingdom than the Northern Kingdom. Especially because if you read the stuff that David and Solomon got up to, um, and keep in mind, for the most part, they're still portrayed as relatively positive figures. It's horrifying. You know, they're like doing this. They're killing uh guys because they want to fuck their wives. They're all sorts of wonderful hijinks. And I mean, granted, that was probably very much the norm for the time. But, you know, we're reading about Northern Kings, you know, by Northern Offers, presumably right after they died, saying like, you know, they did this and it's horrible. But, you know, for the Southern Kings, clearly, it's like, yeah, you no know. You know, they did this. They were still pretty good guys. God liked them a lot. You know, and they messed up a little. Which is, you know, if you ever did that for, like, someone like Ahab or uh, any of the other northern kings, there'd be no way in hell they'd be allowed to be forgiven for that.
1: All right, let's talk some of the philosophical concepts that started to emerge from all of this. So first off, when exactly did they start embracing the notion of the divine kingship then? I mean, since uh, obviously divine and um, Solomon's behavior uh, don't really go hand in hand, or certainly David's.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, to be fair, you have uh, David who was part of a Philistine mercenary band. You know who is double-crossing people left and right, and that I mean, divine. Also, it's uh, it's complicated and it's interesting because, for the most part, at least according to some traditions, to be divine, you just had to do one really, really good thing. It's like Greek heroes. Ted Bundy could be a Greek hero if he invented the boat, or said, like, you know what, this is a new economic system and it was better than the last one. They're still going to say, "Yeah, that's horrifying," but he also invented, you know, like I'm not going to any sides, but I'm just going to say what America likes is, you know, Keynesian economics. He he deserves some for that, but for the most part, the kind of things really in Jerusalem was very much the idea as divine blood bloodline and the king as automatically sacred. Um, specifically due to a connection with power or possibly even was always there the ancient. It was always there in you know Sumeria and other places. but it was for the most part i expressed very, very strongly like in Egypt certain periods of Canaan uh, or what we would call Ugarit and some of the Amorite states, or it was expressed you know on a more subdued level. Like in Assyria or Babylon or other Canaanite states, it's like yeah, the king has special ancestors, but he still, you know, gets slapped around by the priests. I mean, from what we know, it's probably likely that they this up from um maybe, or the Philistines who were um once again probably Mycenaean, or at least Cretan or something. They weren't. They were from around the area of Greece and Crete, probably. David, you know, spent a lot of time with the Phoenicians. but one of the older scholars, Roy A. Rosenberg says that no, it was definitely from the Jacobites.
1: so when did they first start coming up with the Cretian connection? and that's really interesting
2: um it's it's been there for a while, actually. I mean, um you know, there's the fact that a lot of the philistine art. Looks very close to, uh, and, and they had art. I know that's sort of shocking to a lot of people because Philistine is used by a lot of people to mean dumbass who can't appreciate art, but actually, it's some very, very nice art. And a lot of it was very, very similar to uh, both Cypriot and Minoan art, as well as some uh, <clears throat> uh, Mycenaean art, specifically in their pottery and some of the murals we find um their names are not Semitic they're not Anatolian Indo-European either those are not Hittites you know they're Sumerian was a dead language for a while so definitely not that they call their king uh Siren, which goes back to uh Tyrannus which is of course what the Greeks called their kings and there are no um uh, Hittite records of uh Ahiyawa or uh, Achaean settlements in that area at around the same time. In fact, one of the Philistine tribes is even called uh, the Dananu, which is basically, if you've read the Iliad, the Danoi of Achilles' fame.
1: Fascinating, man. Um, now it's definitely um, curious to see how the uh, intersections of these different cultures uh, played out in that region. All right, so uh, how about the concept of a personal messiah? Now, was that something that was also linked uh, to Exodus and the different uh, interpretations
2: of it? Uh, Not really, because the big thing about Exodus was the idea of the law code and the idea of salvation, or at least community membership through uh, collective action, and presumably through collective rights with no real... Head. There was a master of ceremonies, of course, but there wasn't like a guy who did it. You know, these things. You would have the passive right, and there you had it. But this exological idea of there is going to be a guy who is going to be a king who is going to come back and do shit at the end of time. Is once again an idea that is very, very, very <clears throat> tied to these uh, divine kingship groups. Especially because, you know, I mean, the much more pacifistic uh, Demuzid was seen as a personal messiah, at least to an extent, in Sumeria. And Mesopotamia, and he would be later known as Tammuz, and it's entirely possible that, you know, even though Demuzid was very much a lover and not a fighter, that he was still, you know, the ancestor of the Divine King who the Divine King would take on some aspects of. You know, he was still in some ways a personal messiah who would, once a human, who would help you with that. Because really, you know, for... For there to be a personal messiah, you know, with extra emphasis on the idea of a bloodline that carried divine things, with the extra idea of, you know, salvation, not through a God's revelation, but specifically through spirit possession of a formerly human spirit. I mean, it, it, that is very much alien to this kind of, to both Northwest Semitic and Mesopotamian ideology in many ways, with the exception of the who was only really, you know, more of a mystery cult. But I mean, you know, one personal Messiah was Osiris, who, as Solomon was an Egyptophile, would have been very familiar with. There's also the fact that, I mean, you know, like in the Jewish works and In the early Christian works, especially in the Jewish works and the Muslim works, uh, the Messiah is a very ambivalent figure. You know, he is correlated to the great dragon. He is seen as someone who is just as able to, uh, you know, destroy the world as to save it. You know, he is the star child. He is the... Not exactly the son of God, because there. The idea that God has those kind of genitals and personal sonship is one that's going like to alien him, but, you know, there is this idea of, like, sort of this non-Nicene Christian idea of divine being that incarnates human flesh. Which is, you know... In some ways, very, very similar to the idea of the Nephilim is, you know, the idea of God going down or a God going down rather than the Enochic idea of man going upwards.
1: And this was also equated with uh, the great serpent or the great dragon, you were saying?
2: Yeah, it actually was. Is that, you know, I mean, uh, there's a lot of stuff that links the Messianic Torah especially in the works of Andre Orlov or Andre Orlev, you know, talks about the eating of the loviathan. As in the end of times, according to uh, Jewish lore, and before anyone explains, says, oh, you're being anti-Semitic. I, at least ethnically, in a lot of ways, culturally, I am Jewish. So, you know, just... There's that, <laughs> and but, um, in Andrea Law, if he talks about the idea of eating a leviathan, and the way the leviathan killed is specifically that it's a way that is very much against kosher law, and the leviathan is the symbol of necessarily subdued chaos. But then, at the end of times, the leviathan gets loose. And it does some things, and it dies, and then the righteous, or those who are saved, will eat it. And what Andre Orlov says is that it is an overturning of the Mosaic Torah into one where there is no rules whatsoever for the saved. They can do whatever Um, they want.
1: So in other words, um, uh, everything is permitted, nothing is denied, or something like that?
2: <laughs> yeah, but only to a certain certain amount of people. It's not just like all Jews, it's like, you know, very specific uh, things. You know, like, you, you, it's not just like, you know, Joe Rubenstein, who is the special rabbi. This is like the elect, elect. You know, and so seeing as the Leviathan itself was actually a symbol of Judah and keep in mind is that when I say Judah I mean the nation because there were a lot of tribes of Israel there were 12 or maybe 11 depending on as you count the Levites and all of them were essentially mixed together by both the Assyrian and Babylonian exile you know there really wasn't any difference between Judeans and Samaritans except on what mountain they really liked and their thoughts on David there, there really wasn't, you know, a all Jews are Judeans. In fact, most of the Hebrew Bible specifically comes from the Israelites. So, yeah. So we're, we're going to call them the Judites or just Judah. Um, is that one of the symbols of Jerusalem is the lion, who is also a symbol of Nergal and the Leviathan. Well, the behemoth is the ox, the symbol of the northern kingdom, the symbol of the, the storm god. As opposed to the chaotic ocean god. And there's this idea, as said in Andre Orlov, that the Leviathan gets free and um, does a bunch of things, bad things that essentially destroy the universe. And I mean, you know, it's a lot of people think, oh, it's a big dragon, it's a no to God. But as you read the the Kabbalah, it's, it's very much like this is an H.P. Lovecraft monster that exists at the edge of the universe. And it does those things. And then, you know, you know, you eat it and the elect elect, the cream of the crop, get to become amoral god beings, or at least beings that don't really have to follow a law. And what's really interesting is that we've actually had a couple of would-be some messiahs, the most famous of which is uh, Sabbatai Zevi. Are you familiar with Sabbatai Zevi?
1: It sounds vaguely familiar. Uh, was he an early um, um, Kabbalist too?
2: Not early. He was around the middle of the Kabbalistic movement. He was active in the seventeen hundreds.
1: Okay, okay, okay. But yeah, he, he was, was a the
2: guy who, yeah, who started the Sabbatean movement. And if you ever heard the story about this, yes, uh, okay, okay, yeah. Jewish mystic who went up to the Sultan of Turkey and was like, "Shoot me, shoot me! I'm a, you know, I'm the Messiah." But I mean, you know.
1: So these guys were all following this kind of Leviathan cult, then, is what you're saying? The the uh, Savians is what you mean?
2: The Sabbateans, not Sabbateans. Yeah,
1: Sabbateans, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. the Sabbateans were, and what they actually said is that, you know, uh, the souls of the righteous in their doctrine would be incarnated in these outer monsters who would be feeding off them. And so any sin would be explained that, you know, like the greater the man, the greater his sins. And so, you know, there was this spark of good, like the, you know, to use my ever present Star Wars analogy, the bit of Anakin Skywalker and Darth Vader. But they were essentially, you know, like incarnating these pre existent soul sparks, these, you know, monsters into uniforms that would slowly burn it off and could do whatever they want. And, you know, Space V was fucking crazy. Not just, you know, like the, overturning of Torah rules because, I mean, you, you could say, okay, I've come with a new Torah, but he was also a megalomaniac. He, uh, you know, would get into fights. He uh, once chased a guy out of a synagogue with an axe because he refused to worship him. He uh, he was just batshit insane. I mean, he'd do stuff like, you know, strangle live chickens and eat them Raw. You know, just all in all, a guy who was very much batshit insane. And it's interesting because a lot of the messiahs, you know, the despite what the say, the, the literature says, if you look at the way a lot of the rabbinic authorities react to the messiahs who are all acting fucking crazy... And they all act fucking crazy. They they act like this. And ironically enough, the Messiah is supposed to act fucking crazy and, you know, like this. I'm going to destroy the world. And they're like, yeah, you know, we gotta put a stop to this. So there's almost this sort of uh, idea of, if you see the Messiah by the roadside, kill him. <laughs> because there the there minute even, he like... takes hold... Yeah, that's a four... isn't
1: it, in some cultures?
2: Yeah. Uh, if You see the Buddha by the roadside, oh, okay. Yeah.
1: Because you see the Buddha by the roadside. Yeah. okay, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was like, I mean, it because I mean, even in the best case scenario, a lot of the Kabbalists were very, uh, you know, like this guy, once he takes over, we got 40 years before the world blows up and restarts. It's gonna be a good 40 years, but that's there's still that. I mean, in Islam, you know, they already have Muhammad, they don't really have much need for a messiah, but the figure closely related to the messiah is specifically a figure known as the beast or the great beast who has horns like alexander the great not like satan but like ram horns and who beats the shit out of people and who uh who carries the seal of solomon as a master of demons i mean there's less written about him because i said he's more just an exosological road bump but he's still very much, you know, like the closest thing in the Messiah. Yeah, he's called the uh, the beast of the earth.
1: But he's separate from the Mahdi,
2: right? He is separate from sort okay. of. Sort of. Yeah, and the, I mean he he's separate, but he's also, you know. Now, according to medieval Sunni theologian Fakir Al Din Al Razi, there is nothing mentioned in these reports attributed to Islam, Prophet Muhammad, but nature's creature, but it's mentioned in the narration circulating around time of the successors. Wab Ibn Munabi stated that the such a beast spoke to the people of Sodom from under the earth.
1: Now it's fascinating because it seems to be, I mean, kind of in keeping with some of the um, the Native American beliefs, especially those among like the various woodland tribes and later like, like the Adina and the Hopewell. You know, obviously the three-tiered world, uh, the upper world, the Dominion of the Thunderbirds, uh, kind of the Middle-earth where we reside, and then there's obviously the Underworld, uh, which was, um, you know, lorded over by, uh, usually depicted as a great-plumed serpent or something to that effect. So yeah, it does sort of seem like again there's this once again a uh, tradition of this um, kind of massive, almost reptilian beast uh, beneath the earth that will eventually rise to the surface.
2: Yep, I mean we already have that in the books of the serpents in the tomb of Ayufa, which states you know um, yeah there's these giant beasts that are asleep and that autumn's going to wake them up at the end of time and they're going to destroy everything but autumn and Osiris. And, you know, we also have um, this idea that, I mean, going back to Egypt, um, in the thing on the Deccans, which are these stars, it says, the souls of the gods are in the serpent. So, you know, but I mean, in Israelite cosmology, what's really interesting is that it was actually serpents all the way down. Like, uh, for example, uh, the Seraph, you know, the Seraphim were depicted as flying serpents, like the Uraeus, specifically as four-winged cobras um, who would shoot fire. Um, You know, the jugs at Tel Dan would also be marked with a serpent as a guardian being. There were great serpents supposedly under the earth creating creation. And keep in mind that the word serpent didn't really mean snake it just sort of meant big or dangerous or majestic reptile like you know you could show them uh
1: I think let's like just worm, say like, like uh, what is it uh you know what i'm saying like the mythological concept of the worms
2: yeah, yeah, basically. Like, if you brought back a Tyrannosaurus Rex and they didn't consider it a bird, it would be a serpent. You know.
1: Fascinating. So, yeah, that's um. Well, I mean, also there's the famous um. You know, magician stool between Moses and Pharaoh's court, where they turn their staves into uh, serpents as well. That's usually one of the other major connections I think of with uh serpents and uh, the early Israeli
2: religion. Oh yeah, Moses had tons of serpent symbolism. And, um, uh, in in more mainstream Kabbalistic work, uh, there is this dualism of the two serpents. Specifically, the heavenly serpent, represented by James, the infernal serpent. Uh, in Abraham, there's this idea of the Leviathan, the good serpent and the evil serpent. And even the first phase of God's existence, this being called Hivi, who, according to uh, the poetics of the Divine, Demonic, and the Zohar, was sort of not really evil as much as it was just chaotic, destructive longing to return to the Abyss, who has to be kept in a, you know, in check by humans doing the commandments, or else the universe falls apart. But, I mean, it, it is this idea of snakes and serpents is just everywhere it's everywhere
1: fascinating well all right uh getting back here to exodus a little bit uh what about divinely ordained genocide it, it's not a concept people like to talk about but it's it's incredibly relevant to put it mildly
2: well this is actually really interesting because we well, first of all, it's interesting that it's really in a lot of book religions. Like, for example, Hinduism also has divinely ordered genocide against—I I don't remember—you know, I don't remember what they are called, but essentially the non-Indo-European population. If you want to read it, i, f- I forgot what they're called. <laughs> um, in the in the term, but like, I mean, I guess in real life they'd be called Gervidians, but there is that. Um, but specifically in, uh, in the Hebrew Bible we get a lot of the ideas of the order of genocide carried out by humans on other humans in the books of Leviticus and the book of Joshua specifically of the clearing out of the land of Canaan now this is really interesting because in many ways it actually contradicts the story of Genesis because, um, you know, in the story of Genesis, especially the parts written by the Elohist or northern writer, you know, the people populated in Canaan, the Moabites, the, who have all the sons of Abraham's brothers or even younger siblings, you know, the Edomites, the Molites, from Asa and uh, Lot, Shemilek, uh, by the Hittite. And so, so, it's kind of weird because those people are still reported to be in the land during the Book of Kings, and are reported to be, you know, Always, essentially, going to be there as children of Abraham, or family of Abraham. So there, there is, unseen book Joshua and book of uh, Leviticus. And Joshua was sort of an ambiguous figure, who you know was sort of really taken in this other cult, and uh, so, of course, yeah, that's already the first sign, but there's also the, um, you know, the side of uh and in Richard Elliott Friedman's um, book, um, Exodus, what happened, and of course, this is a, it's exact apologetics book. This is very much a an academic history book, or at least pop academic. You know, it's a pop history book Is that they're talking about. You know, trying to stop the Israelites from worshiping Baal, who is once again a foreign underworld god. You know, God of the Pit, God of the Abyss. You know, Master of the Pit. Really, that's how it translates, or Master of the Hole in both the um, non-Jerusalem priestly versions and then all of a sudden it starts uh saying you know what and then they just started killing all the Midianites and it's like why are they killing the Midianites because there were no Midianites in the whole Bumpur thing and it gets even weirder when you realize oh, oh, oh wait Moses was really close to the Midianites like really close in fact there's some people, including Richard Elliott Freeman himself, who says Moses probably was a Midianite who just was tasked by the Hebrew God or the God Yahweh to help uh, the Israelites who were only sort of distantly related to him. And it's clear, like, you know, uh, the, the Jerusalem priesthood, this is written only in the books written by the actors, did not like them at all. And they're like, you know, we killed them. They go out and they just start killing them and start raping the women and then killing them and it's like okay but it really sort of comes from nowhere. It, it comes from nowhere because as I said it has nothing to do with Paul Pior. It's clumsily inserted in the narrative and it's like all right. And then even in uh you know when they're talking about clearing out the land of Canaan um in uh a book written by Moshe Weinfeld, who is a great biblical scholar. It's not originally the humans that do it. Is that you know, Scooby Doo scares Hornet Monster and scares a lot of way instead of like you know, killing them. But in the priestly redaction of that, it's you no, know, they come in and they kill everybody. They kill everybody which is just, you know, not exactly great because you got to clear out the land because I need my temple in Jerusalem and I cannot have these foreigners in my land. In fact, from what we can tell, the Israelite coalition was originally a coalition of unrelated tribes. And I mean, there's other stuff like that. You know, you could say, well, what about Moses, King, you know, like, you no. Know, like, but to be fair, if you read a lot about the people that Moses fought in both. Well, there's another thing. Is that specifically, we know the fact that uh, uh, over, uh, they made golden calf and they're worshipping it and stuff, that was also an anti-Northern polemic. Because we know for a fact that um, in the Northern Kingdom, Yahweh was worshipped, especially by the priests who claimed descent send Aaron at Beth-El. And so that was, you know, put in there specifically to say, fuck you, Northern Yahwism. This wasn't, you know... There from the beginning, it was there saying, you know, look at how foolish these northerners are, her believing that the symbol of our God is a bull and not things. But I go all over the place, but back to, uh, you know, the other people that Moses killed outside of that, they, they really don't seem like actual people. You know, we know that Og, for example, was a Canaanite god or canaanite giant who might have been associated with the sea god we know that or because keep in mind that there was no It; it was just Em, and that word could be used for anything masculine and when you read the words about them they don't really seem like little people they seem like sort of monsters because they're you know, banished by the sight of the sun and they drink blood and they don't actually manage to kill any of them. They just manage to drive them away. So really, I mean, you know, there's, there's still plenty of killing going on, but this idea of like, you know, we have to really clear the land to make way for the ruling bloodline, who I enough was uh, the son of a Moabite mother, is very much... From the Jerusalem priesthood. I have no idea why this is, but it seems to be there. For it. It's definitely a part that we really have to contend with, especially in the New Testament. But I mean, you know, even like the rabbis were like, I don't know how to feel about this. To the point where some of the Kabbalists said that Joshua was. Born wrong, and once again, guess what Joshua had connections with the sun. There are, uh, Several I think that he was actually, you know, much more associated with the lion, the sun, than with Yali. It was oh. basically the idea that almost all the ideas of things that could be called, you know, genocide really do stem from the Jerusalem Priestly Redaction.
1: Fascinating. All right, so if that's not controversial enough up to this point, we're going to take it up uh, its notch further as we head into the home stretch. So possibly get ready to be offended. And on that note, Austinese, why don't you start going a little bit more in depth into the uh, good old uh, Nergal god of Samaria, Nergal?
2: Uh, Sure, yeah. So Nergal was uh, basically um, the... God of destruction par excellence in um, the Sierra Mesopotamian tradition, all the way back to, I think, the either during or right before the Akkadian period. He was a young male underworld god, scorching sun of warfare and of heat, who was, for the most part, the master of everything destructive. Um, he was worshipped in the city of Kutha, which is in Mesopotamia, and the city of Mashkan here, which in some ways is thought to have been, according to some archaeologists, the real Sodom, especially because the city burned down in one night or in a couple days, which is actually very hard for an ancient city to do because of the way they were built. If you want to read that, read the works of uh, Igor Kreimerman. He talks about how hard it is to burn down a city at once and he was the lord of the underworld he was um the f- fallen angel or rather the fallen god who was you know kept in lock and key by uh, either enlil or marduk depending on what era it was in and you know in some places he was uh split into multiple gods like in the Indo-European groups who sort of merged him with their own gods, he was, you know, they took bits of him for like, okay, we have multiple fallen angel gods or fallen destructive gods who are gods of fire, who, you know, tried to set up their own institution to rival the main gods and who had some connection with some bad kings. And these would be, you know, Karunta and Kumarbi, And, like, and, I mean, in the Levant, he was even split into three gods. So you had, you know, Motu, who was death itself, this big, gluttonous fuck, who was just destruction and drought. You had Reshchef, who was the archer god of also death, destruction, and drought, and who was interestingly a falcon god associated with Horus. And there was Hironu, who was We've talked about it before, but he was the god of dark magic and venomous snakes and all sorts of other things. And the enemy of the Canaanite, demigod Adamu. But these sort of, uh, you know, all of these were gods that were worshipped but were not really liked. You know, And but the thing is that Nergal, as a god of war... Could some perks. And according to José Luis Borbe, Belmonte, I mean, he was also seen as the god of wealth, the god, of, the god who controlled the demons of time, who could, you know, get you very, very rich. She could write things, a lot of worldly power. He was seen as the god of Mars. He was seen as the patron of Great warrior and the friend of uh, Sargon, who was first to the Sumerian Empire besides the Star, who was the other major patron. He was a lion, he was diseased, and most importantly, really, he was the god of fucking over other people to save your or benefit yourself.
1: Was there a technical name for that?
2: <laughs> Not really.
1: I'm just curious if it had some. I sort really think. will go for it.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, he was not really, you know, like the Hades of the Pantheon. He was much more of the Ares. And, you know, he was very, very big. He was an archer god. He was the guy who could destroy the world. He was very, very related to kingship, though in a very ambiguous way. His names are, you know, the sinister, the strange, the vile, the liar, the evil, the fox, the star of Elam. it's seven names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got some definitely some uh, compelling honorifics there. It is called the False Star. You know, there's the, specifically to replace Marduk, but was, he was also, you know, part of the seven names of power.
1: Was he ever called the uh, was he ever called the Butch? The what? But that was a that was a reference to Ghostbusters too, actually. <laughs> the painting of Vigo. Oh
2: the butch? Oh yeah, he was he was called the butch. Unfortunately, no one actually uh came up to a tablets and painted a kitten on it. I'm sure he would love it. So yeah, he was he was, you know, god of bloodshed. And he... Uh, a very popular cult because, you know, if you wanted to kill people or you wanted to get rich or you wanted to deceive someone or you wanted to, you know, use magic for questionable means then you would say, alright, I'm going to Nerdle and in fact, he was even the guy who was host for the world at the end of times according to some people so the cycle could start over again um you know, in some places he's nominally on the side of order. Kind of like he's against chaos monsters, but like kind of, but in other places not really. Chaotic Especially neutral. because more like chaotic evil, but a forced friend. Ah, I see. Or um, neutral evil. Chaotic <laughs> neutral with evil tendencies. Yeah, I'm I'm just like, you know. So he was not a great guy and sometimes he was seen as an enemy of other chaotic forces like you in no, the way that Pazuzu was the enemy of other demons, but in other times was like, oh, he's all for the primordial chaos. To the point where in a Talmud they call him the Dunghill cock. And at first it's like, haha, look at the false idol and stupid. But when you actually read it, it's it's some interesting wordplay because, you know, Hebrew doesn't have vowels so you can have a lot of words and what that can also mean is not just the dunghill cock but warrior of the abyss and what's really interesting is that one of the cities where his cult took off really really uh interestingly is uh tarsus and guess who's from tarsus
1: yeah well that brings us to the next question how does all this connect to paul and pauline christianity
2: uh, this is where it gets, where I'm going to get a lot of fucking hate mail. So it's going to, so you're going to get a lot of unsubscribers, but Paul from Genesis. And we know that Paul, um, according to at least Morton Smith, was a magician who the ability to hand people over to Satan. And seeing as the main god of tarsus was the god sandas who once again was oh, kind of sort pers-
1: of is this when he was, was this uh before or after he took the name paul because he was originally Saul the persecutor right
2: well it's interesting because he from what we can tell he wasn't Probably wasn't a Pharisee in actuality because he doesn't write like one. And the fact is, is that even though they had some popular support, they had no political power. You know, it's entirely possible the Pharisees were saying that, you know, get Jesus killed, but they couldn't really do anything because the Romans didn't like them and they didn't like the Romans. He would have been a Sadducee who, once again, were the final steps of the Jerusalem priesthood, or at least worked for them because, you know, there's just no way in hell the Romans would ever let the Pharisees have the authority to send out agents to kill anyone. And a lot of people think that Paul was originally a pagan whose family converted to Judaism. He tried to sort of be a great rabbi, but he wasn't really good at it. And so he decided, fuck it. I'm going to work with the temple establishment, which very few people liked because they're Roman capos and you know, he goes there. He starts persecuting the followers of Jesus. Um, but then he has a guilt trip and realizes, "Oh my fucking god, you know what would everyone think of me?" And then he's like, "You know, I, I love Jesus. I'm going to write this idea of original sin and of salvation through faith only because I have to believe that other people would do just as horrible things as I did, given the circumstances."
1: This is what being the only problem like with what light can do for you.
2: Yeah, no, it is. I mean, it's true, but the the story of the priest who's like, I don't like this God, and then they get blinded and they're like, I love this God. now they're no longer blind. is actually a really common trope. A really common trope. So, I mean, we we don't really know this. What Paul essentially says is that he's, uh, uh, his ideas is that once you, you come back once the Jesus man comes back, it's not like and then you go to heaven and everyone else goes to hell. It's that you will become these new kinds of creatures, nephilim or whatever, I mean of holy and sanctioned by God, who will rule over the rest of mankind. You will have a different nature and like like different like the resurrected Jesus different than that. You will no longer resemble humans. It's like, uh, okay. And so, you know, he's there and he's talking about the fact that, you know, you got to get on the Jesus train, you know, which is seemingly connected by a spirit, an actual spirit, like a ghost, specifically the soul of Jesus or potentially the soul of Jesus or in the soul of John the Baptist to get on the movement to become one of these God beings at the end of time, which was going to happen really, really soon according to his writings in fact it even goes all the way to augustine saying that the greatest pleasure the saved are going to have is watching the sinners in hell which is fun but we we know that like saul was in some weird shit he had uh tattoos which was doesn't sound that bad now but from a uh from the period of time it was in, it was either a mark of slavery, and seeing as he didn't just have had tattoo, he had multiple, it was a sign of being an occultist or magician. Um, You know, hung out with ghosts, he uh, gave people over to hell. And the best part is, is that, you know, um, Pauline Christianity was, of course, taken up by the Emperor Constantine, who also saw a uh, UFO and was blinded and then decided he likes Jesus, but the family uh, Constantine, the yeah, I forgot when he was. He was a... not the julio Claudians, the Flavians, or are... were essentially seen as patrons of Apollo. Who once again? Oh, the Claudio Flavian dynasty, you mean? Yeah, the Claudio Flavians. I think. Yeah, I think he was one of them. But they. The point is that he was also very into Saul and Invictus, who was once again a semi-cathonic savior sun god. And it would have made sense that, you know, for someone who's involved in the cults of Mithras, who, according to some people, was another aspect of Nergal, the bull slayer, the Gathonic god of blood and triumph. You know, the you will do this, you will become Titaneth, And, you know, your ancestry goes back to the Trojans. It would have seems very attractive to have this, especially when you read the book of Revelations, which, according to some people, is literally an alchemical purification of the earth. And of course, that sounds great, but what it really means by purification is purification of the other people so that they can become food and energy for the saved to reach the highest level. It's not just like purification, like everyone becomes nice. Because, you know, there is this idea of tormenting the metals. And, you know, I mean, the idea of the apocalypse, this raising of the dead, not just, you know, that you go to heaven when you die, but the apocalypse, as in, you know, we have to destroy everything so that we can ascend to heaven. You know, others must die so that we can become gods or demigods is very big in evangelical Christianity in some of its forms, especially the forms that are really high up in the government a lot of the people who are in the middle east policy department want to start doomsday they want to start a war in the middle east so they can make the book of revelations come true and they can get access to the pleasure cube when they die
1: yeah to fill in some blanks here i think what you're getting at is like dominionism um reconstructionism a lot of that kind of stuff correct
2: yep totally
1: and all of it For those of you unaware, I would recommend some of the shows that I did with uh, David Metcalf uh, a couple of years ago, and also Andre Gagné. Those are uh, both on the subscribers section. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there about Dominionism. But yeah, this is is very much a concern with this whole notion of the doomsday cult in uh, some of these circles. Uh, But anyway, didn't mean to keep
2: interrupting you there. No, it's fine. It's fine. And guess where all of those center around? The Jerusalem Temple.
1: Yes, 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 which is why there's such an obsession with rebuilding the third temple.
2: And it's just like you have all of this, and it goes back to this one building, which for the most part in a lot of sources of the Bible, not written by Jerusalem priesthood, is written as this corrupt, idolatrous, disgusting place, which you know even Jesus himself wasn't really that fond of. You know, I mean, if you read the New Testament, the parts that are...
1: Yeah, the only time he not, actually embraces uh, any kind of physical violence is when he's in the temple and sees that it's
2: been turned into a den of money changers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that was... uh, Yeah. I mean, this, nobody liked to the Sadducee establishment. Even the people then were like, yeah, the temple in an idea is pretty good, but the practice sucks because no one liked the Sadducees. But, you know, I mean, with the book of Revelation, which is a very interesting book, it has a lot of symbolism of Apollo, has a lot of symbolism of alchemy, and some of the writings of Paul, who was also very big on the character of Abraham, you know, it, it's like, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus loved the Jerusalem temple. We need the Jerusalem temple. Jerusalem temple is the most important thing in the world. and you know just to give a last thing is that the jerusalem temple according to the sabians of uh haran was a temple of mars and it was also where the knights templar uh were supposedly digging to find things so really
1: yeah, interesting with the uh, connection with the temple of Mars specifically.
2: I mean, Mars was a big deal. I mean, you know, Mars was the God of Rome. The one who in a uh, uh, Christian circles was considered, you know, Lucifer and Jewish circles called Samael. It was a big deal. You know, they traced their ancestry back to Mars through Mom- Romulus and Remus even, you know, the Tarquin king, uh, Tarquin kings, not the Tarquin kings. You know, that there are some people who say that etymology also goes back to Troy with the Tarhun, main god of the Hittite's kings. It's essentially, you know, I mean, the cult of Nergal, or at least not really a unified cult of Nergal because I don't really believe there's ever a unified cult, but elements of this cult... Ele- of this character things that evolved from it spread all over the mediterranean and you know i mean we don't really know what happened to the sadducees at all we don't know what happened to the last jerusalem priesthood but it's entirely possible that you know they saw what was happening to the temple they saw what was going to happen to the political power of judaism and they just jumped ship went to the catholic church and was like here's some documents have fun
1: uh, is it possible that any of the Sadducees, uh, some of their descendants, or something, had possibly survived? Is it kind of I, priesthood in exile or
2: something to that effect? I don't know. I, to be honest, from a genetic standpoint, admittedly, I'm, I'm much more. Even though I believe in like you know a lot of the stuff that John Keel put out, I'm I'm a lot more suspicious of some of the more physicalist conspiracy things. I don't really think that there's any like pure see families out there i i just don't think that's the case i think that over time unless they were super duper inbred and you know yeah in fact it's, it's entirely likely that you know if there are these Eldridge entities that you know um
1: so interbred on the Sadducees For us first, uh, you know, just to give the uh, Listeners here some idea of like what we're Talking about with this group
2: I talked to a lot of people who are also Very into the subject a lot, so Sometimes it's hard for laymen, but the Sadducees were Essentially the last breath of the Jerusalem temple um, They were A uh, Sort of They did not accept the Talmud or a lot Of the uh, Jesus Or a lot of the traditions that were you know, passed on from the northern kingdom, but it's clear from some of the stuff we found. They did have their own esoteric traditions related to Melchizedek and Zadok. Um, they were big into very, very weird stuff. Um, and they, you know, were very, very close to the Romans. They you know, were very, very close to Roman authorities. They're like, you know what? These guys have divine right to rule. We love Rome. Um, Fuck the people who live here. Really fuck anyone who's not Roman or an upper-class Judean. Fuck the Samaritans and we run the temple. Which is, you know... Yeah, and so it's entirely possible that as these people did trace their ancestry back to the Zadokites, I do think that, you know... I don't know if they actually came from the Zadokites. I don't know how much of Zadok's sperm is actually inside them, but it's entirely possible they at least thought they did and carried on as traditions. And so, you know, this group was the main political, if not the main populist force in Judea for a while until the destruction of the temple, at which point they basically vanished from history. We don't really know what happened to them, you know. Maybe it's because, you know, in Judaism, the Pharisees won. And in Christianity, you know, the temple, as it was, as last spits, wasn't seen as that great. So, you know, maybe they're just like, fuck, we can't say we were Sadducees. We're going to pretend we're someone else and just try and get into both diasporas. But it's also entirely possible with the amount of connections they had with Rome that they're like, you know what, we're leaving um, we're just gonna, you know, be there, be in the diaspora, hang out for a bit, and oh, Pauline Christianity shows up. And it's entirely likely that well, I don't really think there's any like I am the direct descendant of Zadok for thousands of generations. I do think their their ideas are probably in there somewhere, you know, their teachings, their cultism. Definitely.
1: So uh if, uh, assuming, I mean, at least that there were some survivors in the early years, uh, how would they have viewed the rise of Christianity? Would that have been like a blessing? Then is what you're kind of getting at, or
2: it would be something that they could very easily jump ship to. Okay. Paul, okay. you know, with his focus on sacraments and focus on uh, rituals over uh, law, code of ethics, and centralized worship and the centralized priesthood, he had some sad, you see, elements to him. I mean, whether this was the full, you know, like secret doctrine, I have no idea because he might have just been a low-level guy who worked for them. But he had those elements, and so you know, they would have been relatively comfortable saying, you know what, we can, we can be bishops.
1: Well, okay. Um, one thing that I've been wanting to ask to sort of return to some of these uh, Indo-European. Uh, warrior bands that I've been talking about uh, earlier, um, certainly uh, there's a strong connection to many of the regions and uh, peoples that we've talked about with them uh, in the minor part of this episode as well. Uh, Rome, of course, uh, really the foundation ethos uh, seems to be strongly rooted in the customs of these warrior bands. Of course, Romulus and Remus uh, were suckled by a she-wolf or a dire wolf. Um, The wolf is a major major aspect of that frequently um warrior bands were associated with uh both wolves and dogs as i had noted earlier i mean some of the werewolf mythos potentially came from uh, the use of wearing wolf skins while they were in combat and interestingly enough, as well they also were known to sacrifice uh, dogs and wolves periodically though uh, this was seen as a kind of inversion of the natural order if you will almost a tribute to these creatures uh, which they almost at the times sought to merge with uh of course also there is the thing with um remus uh, populating rome by leading a uh raiding party out that abducts the um what was it the uh the sibians or something like that they're the versions yeah 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 takes them back to rome makes them forcibly their wives um, so yeah, there's a lot of these elements. And then of course, also the sort of, uh, proto-knighthood that, uh, Remus supposedly created with his own warrior bands of views and so forth. And then, um, earlier you had mentioned Crete as well. This is another, uh, civilization from ancient Greece, along with, uh, Sparta, uh, especially where there's a lot of evidence of the Kyros. Again, these sort of youth leagues with the warrior bands were, um, uh, used to sort of harden the sons of the upper crust. In the case of Crete, uh, I was actually just reading this account earlier today. it was pretty intense because the kids would be abducted uh, from their parents' home as part of the initiation ritual. I mean it was known beforehand, uh, you know, by the parents that there was going to be an abduction. Uh, But the kids usually weren't necessarily entirely made aware of this, so there was that whole sort of experience of being taken off forcibly to begin with. Uh, I don't know if that was necessarily the same in uh, Sparta or some of the other mainland Greek city-states, but Crete uh, definitely seems to have really gone all out with it. And, of course, um, again, Troy has also been looked at as another possible uh, civilization that it grew out of these original warrior bands and again in case you know those of you who weren't listening to this or wondering how this could have been it's again some of these youth societies may have also been viewed as a means of um uh let's just say getting rid of the uh surplus of males that you had again a lot of um these earlier communities especially amongst the aristocracy it was Fairly common for them to be polygamous with the, uh, you know, the men to have multiple wives. So as with modern-day fundamentalist Mormonism, that creates a little bit of the problem with math. Uh, you know, you have a 50-50 ratio to men to women being born. Uh, it's hard for the upper crust then to have multiple wives if uh, there's a 50-50 ratio. So one of the solutions to that often is to take some of the use and the mouth and, have them go out and uh, acquire their own brides, or even build their own civilizations. Uh, Obviously they didn't start out as such, but it is entirely possible that periodically a lot of these um, different communities grew out of these warrior bands as they went into the wilderness and established camps that gradually became permanent so um what's your take on this austenies uh, do you see this as possibly being a component that was merged into some of these traditions as well
2: entirely possible that you know you have these these and you're right um the fundamentalist mormons i was actually reading a book uh, anthropology book on it, and it about, you know this is why polygamy is bad and um i mean you do have this thing of troy because troy was at least according to most rogues that they'd occasionally have to ban greek mercenaries just to get them to stop doing whatever they were doing but i mean what and i said i'm not exactly an expert as much on some of the indo-european bands but this sort of seems like an initiation rite that you'd read about in like africa or australia or the americas but one that doesn't really stop in a way. Because, you know, in a, in Africa or America, you know, the boys are taken and they're taken on these things that, you know, help them bond together as a group, you know, for a short amount of time. You know, and they do this one dramatic thing and they're like, congratulations, your brothers in this. Here's some beer. You're done. You no longer have to put barbs through your dick or whatever. It's a one-time occurrence. It's over. This seems like a thing that's like going on for years. And that's really interesting. They're like, you know, creating this sort of predatory group. Because I remember rightly, you know, the Spartan youths were, you know, encouraged to go out and kill and rape helots, right?
1: Yeah, well, if I could interject, I mean, it was a lot of, and I mean, obviously it wasn't necessarily universal to every single culture, but in many of them, these youths were also used as a kind of um, warrior elite as well that would supplement the conventional forces I mean effectively they were kind of a proto version of what we would think of now as special operations forces or guerrilla fighters or something like that you know you could send them behind enemy lines and they could live off the land and you know do all these sabotage operations and assassinations and things of that nature
2: well yeah but I mean you know at least for the Spartans it was rich sabotage operation against their own citizens or at least their own serfs and inhabitants because yeah, everyone's like oh my god sparta was such a good warrior they really weren't that great they lost a lot of wars they sucked at siege warfare in a uh, thucydides there's a part where they talk about you know like well after the persians destroyed your wall will be your guards athens and they're like no and that's because Sparta couldn't conquer anywhere of a wall. The reason they had the society was specifically to create a state of constant fear in the helots, who were like their serfs or slaves. It, it, it seems, at least in the case of Spartans, that it was very much a, less of a special ops unit and almost more like, you know, uh, the Nazis had Operation Werewolf, right, with the serial killers.
1: Yeah, well, the- theoretically, anyway, um, I mean, there's some yeah. to how much like they actually did with Werewolf, but yeah, yeah, that was the theory.
2: Well, yeah, it have been like that for ancient Sparta. Is that you get this group of kids, you both give them a sense of dejectedness and entitlement at the same time, and I mean, this probably wasn't the case with these other warrior bands because they were, you know, fighting each other. But at least in Sparta, and maybe in creed if it was you know like a settled agrarian society with the upper class and peasants as opposed to like you know just people running around the woods hitting each other with axes then it would move from a method of like you know just one tribe versus the other to a method of state control against their own population
1: well in fairness that kind of seems like increasingly what we're doing with our own elite forces here as well but yeah I, i get what you're saying
2: well, I mean, yeah, you know, the American establishment, really everyone in the West seems to have a heart on for Sparta right now. Uh,
1: there was always this dark side too, to a lot of these practices, because as you're saying, it was in many ways a kind of institutionalized terror campaign, uh, which again brings up shades and things like Phoenix and Gladio and all this other good stuff. Uh, which, again, might explain why so many of these groups are obsessed with these knightly orders and what have you. I mean, that was kind of another thing that I think was an attempt to recreate some of this, you know, this culture with these. um, Because obviously, I mean, to to be a knight, I mean, you had to start training for that when you were still in your teens in a lot of cases. So, again, uh, a lot of these uh, lesser sons of nobility were sent off and uh, brought into, again, these kinds of orders. The same ones as we had uh, mentioned before, who ended up digging around the uh, Temple of Jerusalem and so forth, at least initially.
2: So, no, I mean it's it's also very much true that you know I am very skeptical of a lot of these ideas of a unified conspiracy. Yeah, I just I'm not saying there aren't a bunch of conspiracies because there probably are, and they're probably very old. But I don't think there's like just one group of people. It was like, you know what? It was us from Sumeria all the way to George Washington. It was one group. I, I just, the logistics for that seem relatively impossible. But what it does sound like is that, you know, there are these either entities or psychological principles that seem to attract societies around them. Whether you want to call them Yogiian complexes, Demons, angels, or even ultra-terrestrials like John Keel. And, you know, they want this kind of centralization and terror and death and destruction. Done by a small, you know, elite who want socialism for themselves, capitalism for the rest of us, or serfdom for the rest of us, depending on what era it is. I mean, you know, they, they do seem best with sexuality, whatever they are. I, I don't think it's like, oh, these things are our our direct ancestors, you know, an alien came down and fucked a caveman. And 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 then and that, that caveman was the great, great, great to the hundredth power ancestor of George Washington. I, I don't think that, but it's like, you know, I mean, it's entirely possible that in a way, weirdly similar to a lot of, you know, evangelical, uh, uh, things were like, you know, when you're having sex, make room for Jesus. It's like, you know, maybe it's like, you know, when you're having sex, make room for the old gods, because we do have evidence of that from Mesopotamia, from Europe.
1: I mean, I was gonna say, I mean, I think in a sense that kind of seems to be the recurring thread through all of this. I mean, be it whether that's these, you know, kind of warrior bands or these priesthoods or these uh different groups, the big thing that they all seem to have in common is uh they possess techniques that um you know put people in an ecstatic state to the point that they're open to possession uh which i think well, it's to... not
2: just possession but it's possession during sex
1: yes yes, is yes, that
2: yes. It, yes it's like you know the third parent is that you know it's because it's not just like oh their dad was this it's almost like you know either there's a third spiritual force or the party is possessed and you know you have this gilgamesh you have this pharaohs of Egypt, where they talk about Amun possessing, you know, someone. Well, they, they fuck to get the in. You even have this in uh, some of the, in the literature where it's stated that through what seems to be being tricked into unwitting sex magic, Gilgamesh, I mean, he's a hero. He out as an asshole. And he has to be put in this place by, you know, Enkidu, who's like, you know, you can't do this shit. Because he, he does start out as an asshole. It's not like he's just you know, Mr. Hero from the beginning. He's more like a reformed monster who was said to have a father and one of the two was a So that's what I think they mean when they're claiming uh, ancestors. It's either adoption by these forces or by these complexes or by these myths, because they might not be real and literal, so they certainly think so. Or it might be some form of second.
1: Yeah, and I mean again, that also, I you know, I had not wanted to bring it up, but since you did, I mean, a, another thing that seems to stand out with a lot of the accounts of the men or bun or of or whatever you want to call them is um, uh, the, pack, the practice of pedestry. Uh, obviously, I, again,
2: I, I totally agree. I, I totally agree.
1: Uh, typically, I mean, these bands were usually led by one or two older men, and. Um, yeah, uh, there often were uh, acts of sexuality performed, uh, to put it mildly, in a ritualistic fashion in these groups. So, well, on that note, then, I, uh, I think we'll sign off for now. As always, Austin sneeze. it has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Definitely have to have you back again here uh, go over some more of this uh, great ancient history. You uh, have certainly one of the most unique takes on it out there. Alright, guys, well, I hope you have enjoyed this as much as I have. And with that, I say as always, good night and good luck to you all.
3: Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here, bring my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up, sick and tired of pushing. It. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got '86 from the Copper creeper for singing this. I took it to the goat J. Blu-ray, my people there they feeling me. Down low skin, wrote more characters than Stephen King. Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all. I ain't in a hurry, y'all. Come on, baby, pick me up. My wiki up, stuck down in this stick Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what Put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on mama, jump down, turn around Do it for me, stick it out Say one, two, three, mo. Jump baby, we gotta go Hands tied, blindfold, jump into that battle zone I said it's time to get the fuck out Cause they done let the wolves out they're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or flight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat, mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street, tell me that you good for it You want peace, go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Screaming with me, scream Geronimo Head that battle zone Come on baby Pick me up Out here in my wikia Got y'all on some Aztec Bullshit Never getting used to it Got bales of weed And catapults With they wet in it Shoot it over the castle While the meek Can't patrol it off From Berlin to the great While the greatest walls Are bound to fall So legalize it Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it, no need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer, everybody even caught to realized If a farmer don't make cash money when we rock that stash Honey, best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy with people getting healthy, right? by high az talking about that bmc we got no economy if we ain't got no enemy the popo and the bp dhs and army honeywell and l3 razor wires uad's officer excuse me please said i'm just eating my burrito not the Georgia you're looking for See you all on payday See you at the Safeway Bisbee lives on crazy checks BP on that fast pay I sing my hooded blues, y'all I don't make the rules, y'all Just paying my dues, y'all But I'm just saying Sorry, hippies <laughs> If great white father don't make payroll Forget about your maple It's just the one Our whole civilization, what?